Okay, since it's working, since we're live, we'll wait and see what Sergio says, but yep, it came on. There we go. Okay. Let's see what we got here. It looks. There we go. And he says he's typing something. Okay. Yep, we're live. Let me go ahead and give him that. Okay, we have some prayer requests. Um, Don and Pam, who attend here. Pam died Sunday night, and Don is recovered. He is a very, very sad man right now, and he will. Uh, he is in Boulder, Colorado, and he, they're going to bury her on Tuesday. And on two on Monday, I'm going to fly to Boulder. And then I'll fly home on Tuesday. And so it's going to be a busy, busy week because I've got to get the sermon typed this weekend that has to be normally done on Monday. So I would ask that if anybody has any emails starting now until maybe next Thursday, if you would just hold off on emails, I really appreciate it. It's going to be a, a very busy couple of uh, maybe eight days just trying to fit everything in that needs to be done. And I'm already tired from it because I've been trying to get things done in advance. Um, Aaron in Liverpool is diabetic. He's in the hospital in England with COVID, and he only has one functioning kidney. He's been having trouble breathing. His brother emailed me this morning and said he's better, but we want to keep him in prayer until he is released. So Aaron in Liverpool. Rick's wife, Bonnie, continues to have multiple problems while in the hospital, so we want to keep her in prayer. Uh, they've had her on an O2 bag, and uh, it's just one thing after another. Um, Ken and Angela are facing losing communication with their grandchildren because their daughter is dating a Muslim, and their daughter says she's going to be moving out where the, they live together as a family. She's going to be taking the children from the house and. Uh, uh, so they're concerned that they might not see their grandchildren anymore. This is distressing to them. So we want to keep Ken and Angela and the children in prayer. And then Anita has brain cancer. She has two teen children, Cyrus and Elise. And she's openly bleeding. And she actually bled so much, she got blood on one of her children, which has got to be just almost, I can't imagine how traumatizing that must be. So we want to keep those children in prayer. Uh, Anita. She's a Christian. We're praying that the Lord will heal her. And we're also praying for Cyrus and Elise who have to go through that. So there you go with some prayer requests. And uh, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence. We thank you for this opportunity to lift these people up and any others that uh, are struggling with their own troubles and trials and anguishes. And Lord, financial burdens are hemming people in around the world, and uh, for those that are calling out to you, please respond according to your wisdom. Give your people wisdom to conduct their lives in this very difficult world in a way which is proper and correct. They're, everything is just kind of falling apart, and we just need your direction, Lord. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the chance to get into your word, and what a precious word it is. We thank you for it. It is our light and our lamp to keep us on the path until we come into your presence. And may that day be sown. Lord, uh, we just love you, how good you are to us. So we pray that if there's anything said in this class that is incorrect, that you would highlight it and bring us the knowledge of getting that corrected so that people would be properly trained. 
And we pray this certainly in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, let's see what we have here. We have uh, 2 September today. 2 September. What was to become of the temple in Jerusalem? One day, when Jesus and his disciples were talking about the beautiful stonework of the temple, Jesus surprised them by prophesying of its future destruction. He said, the time is coming when all these things will be so completely demolished that not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they asked, when will all these things take place and will there be any sign ahead of time? After telling about future wars and persecutions, he said, and when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of the desolation has arrived. Jesus went on to say, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Wrath is an expression used throughout the Bible for God's judgment on those who have broken his covenant. The Jews had broken God's covenant by rejecting the Messiah. Jesus ends his prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem by saying they will be brutally killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be conquered and trampled down by the Gentiles until the age of the Gentiles comes to an end. Approximately 33 years later on the Later, the events leading up to fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy began to unfold. In AD 66, a Jewish revolt against the Romans was triggered when a Roman official stole money from the temple treasury. Fighting broke out in Jerusalem, and soon a full-scale revolt was underway. Jewish extremists took control of Jerusalem and massacred the Romans there. The Roman legate in Syria learned of the massacre of the massacre and assembled an army. His attempt to storm Jerusalem was thwarted, so he ordered a retreat that soon turned into a rout. When news of the Jewish uprising reached Rome, one of Rome's most experienced generals, Vespasian, was dispatched to Judea to deal with the revolt. Accompanied by his son Titus and three Roman legions, Vespasian conquered Galilee in 67. In the early summer of 68, as he marched towards Jerusalem, word came of the death of Nero, the emperor. Vespasian then withdrew to Caesarea to wait for news of who would emerge as emperor. In July 69, Vespasian himself was proclaimed emperor, and he turned over his army to Titus. By the end of 69, Titus had subdued all of Judea except for Jerusalem and three outposts overlooking the Dead Sea. In the spring of 70, Titus began his siege of Jerusalem. The Jews from outside the city were so confident of their eventual victory that just prior to the siege, great numbers of pilgrims entered Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. The city was full when the siege began in earnest. The Romans broke through the walls of the city and fought the Jews house by house, destroying the city as they went. On 2 September AD 70, the, conque the conquest was complete. The temple had been burned, and not one of its stones was left standing on another. Historian Josephus reported that over a million Jewish lives were lost in the siege. 97,000 were taken away captive. The Jews had paid a fearful price for rejecting their Messiah. The disciples might have been surprised by the harsh things that Jesus told them were going to happen to their temple and their people, the Jews. But God's covenants contain both blessings and curses. The Jews experienced God's curse in AD 70 for breaking God's covenant by rejecting their Messiah. Today, we are under the new covenant. 
Those who commit their lives to Jesus the Messiah re receive the blessings of the covenant, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life, and those who do not receive its curses. Hebrews 10.30, For we know the one who said, I will take vengeance, I will repay those who deserve it. He also said the Lord will judge his own people. So there you go with that. Hello, Miss Garrett, how are you? And we have, uh, I did not start by reading Psalm 119, so we'll do that right now, which I should have done five minutes ago. Calf, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They almost made an end of me on earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Okay, we are just getting started here. We're in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, I believe still. Uh, 4.26 if I'm right. Yes, Ephesians 4.26. Let me get a piece of paper in there. And let's see here. Ephesians 4. Get out my notes. Didn't spend all that time doing notes just so that I could do this off the top of my head. Okay, let's see here. Uh, oh yeah, good verse. I'll start with 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then verse 26, today's starting verse says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. All right, here we go. Comments on 426. Paul now reaches back to the Psalms for a necessary thought concerning his discourse. This is a citation from the Greek translation of Psalm 4, verse 4. He uses two different words to describe the emotions. The first is angry and conveys the sense of settled opposition. It is positive when inspired by God and always negative when arising from the flesh. So if you're angry in the flesh, you're negative in God's eyes. And if you're angry because of what makes God angry, then you have the right righteous indignation towards whatever the issue is. You know, I get angry every day when I read about the state of the world. I'm studying for the week's reports, and I, I literally get angry. I'm fuming under my collar at what I'm reading. And uh, I sometimes I have to say, Lord, I'm sorry about that. And I think, well, the Lord's angry about this too. So, But I'm just, I'm very upset at the way things are going in this world. And, you know, it's the end times, and that's to be expected. But it doesn't make it any less miserable, you know, to have to live through the things that are going on in the world. And, you know, in my reports, I talk about things that that uh, I think are interesting for the, you know, the people that are going to watch it and maybe something that other people haven't talked about in their reports because there's a million people that do reports out there. But um, there are lots of things I simply cannot add into there. They're so perverse, the things that people do. I The things I see in the news every single day are just disgusting. The way people mutilate other people, the things they do before they kill them. I read these things all day long. Things teachers do with their students, read them every week. It's just, it never ends the depravity that is coming out in this world today. And it's getting worse. Every time I click on it, I think it can't be worse than yesterday. And every day it is worse than the day before. The things that are going on in this world. And 
you know, we have to have a righteous indignation towards these type of things. The second word you have, the first one was angry. The second word is wrath. And it conveys the sense of irritation, exasperation, bitterness, which is provoked, for example, by someone causing a personal up-close sense of anger. That's helps word studies definition of that. Paul says that we are to be, in fact, angry when it is right and proper to be angry. If we have a godly anger towards something, we are to show a correct attitude, not a negative one. Our anger at the sinful nature is not only anticipated, but it is expected and it is approved of. I was talking to somebody on the phone a little while ago, and he was talking about some things that, that happened in his communication with another person, and the person he was talking to said, you know, I have much more respect for Satan than God, because at least Satan is honest in what he says. And I, you know, this guy said, our, our friendship is terminated. I, we, I, I can't have that in my life. And he was righteously indignant at what he had heard. And that kind of thing, you should never have to listen to somebody say something like that, especially when you're a professing Christian. Somebody says, that just cut him off. You don't need to have that type of person in your life to say something like that. So um, read that again. Paul says that we are to, in fact, be angry when it is right to be angry. If we have a godly anger towards something, we are to show a correct attitude, not a negative one. Our anger, <coughs> excuse me, our anger at the sinful nature is not only anticipated, but it is expected and it is approved of. It is not sinful to be filled with righteous indignation. However, in our anger, we are told, do not sin. We should not let our anger at the sinfulness of another cause us to sin. A good example of this is that we are to be avenged, or I'm sorry, we are to be angered at the vile conduct of those who oppose God through such things as the support of abortion. That should make us angry. We should work against it. We should fight against it. Okay, but at the same time, we shouldn't do anything illegal in our pursuit of ending abortion. I don't know if you heard the news, but um, Texas has a heartbeat bill. Okay, they passed a heartbeat bill in Texas. If they can detect a heartbeat in a child in the womb, they pass the law that that child is not to be murdered. Okay, that means about six weeks when they can first start detecting a heartbeat. And that was challenged, it was challenged, it was challenged. It went to the Supreme Court of the United States yesterday, and the Supreme Court turned it back, saying we're not going to rule on this, which means that the ruling stands in Texas. And what that means is that any state now that passes a law like Texas cannot be challenged. It is, SCOTUS has turned it back, and they may find another reason to challenge it, but they cannot challenge that particular reason. And so we're very happy about the decision that came out. People have worked long and hard to get that decision through. It went through, and, you know, it's one little victory in a sea of insanity in this world. But thank God that people made the right decision about that abortion issue. Human life being slaughtered by the millions in this country. And so we have a little victory, and we can rejoice over that. But, you know, in your anger, don't sin. A good example of this, as I said, is that we are to be angered at the vile conduct of those who oppose God through such things as the support of abortion. As this is a tenet expressly stated, for example, in the platform of the Democrat Party of the United States, we are to be angry at Democrats for supporting the murder of the unborn. We are to have that attitude. It's not that we should be on the sidelines and say, you believe what you want to believe, and I believe what I want to believe. 
We should be angry at it. We should be adamantly angry that they are allowing this. And if you are voting for that platform, for a per person that's in that party, then you need to tell that person. You call yourself a Christian and you're voting for somebody that is supporting something that is contrary to God's word. And you need to be angry about that. Okay? So, um, we are to be angry at all of them for supporting the murder of the unborn. And yet we are not to allow our anger at them to turn into sin through violence or vulgarity. Remember that guy, I think it was up in Jacksonville or Tallahassee, anyway, here in Florida, and he went and killed an abortion doctor. And when they finally executed him, the last thing he said was, today I'm going to be with the Lord in paradise. Well, that may be true if he's a born-again Christian, but the fact is he should not have done what he did. He committed an illegal act in order to stop other illegal acts. That's not how you conduct your affairs, okay? So what he did was incorrect, and we should be angry at him for what he did, okay? We have to have our anger directed properly at issues. You know, you can support the fact that, well, I won't go that far. I'll just say that what he did was against the law. It was wrong, and it brought a stain on Christians, obviously. So anyway, Paul then tells us to not let the sun go down on your wrath. As noted, this indicates irritation, which is provoked. Don't let irritation, which is provoked, go down on, let the sun go down on that in you. When we allow ourselves to become exasperated to the point where it consumes us, we lose our direction and our focus. Instead of thinking on the things of God, we think on the things of the fallen world. If we continue in this state, it will eventually push out everything else. And so, and I know people like this, they, they get so angry at the issues of the world that it consumes them. That's all they think about. They're angry all the time. They're frustrated all the time. Listen, you can't change it. You can't change the world. You're not going to change the people that are doing these things. So don't dwell on it. If you want to watch and find out what's going on in the world, that's one thing. But if you can't handle it, if you hear things that I say on the CG report on Sunday or on Wednesday, and it upsets you to the point where you're not sleeping, you shouldn't be watching these things. You should be watching something like Leave it to Beaver, okay? That's just, it's the way it is because you're not to let your life be consumed by things that you have no control over. If you can't handle it, step away from it. Listen, I couldn't handle Facebook. I couldn't do it. I finally just shut it down. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I, I, I disagree with the policies of the people that have this platform. I disagree how they treat and, and censor people on the things that they say. It's not worth my time to sit there and be angry over it. I'm just going to shut it down. And I made my stand, and I have, and I best thing I ever did. I walk around 10 times happier every day because I'm not on Facebook anymore. I miss the people that I grew up with and, you know, seeing their birthdays and sharing with them. But it's not worth it to me to have to go through that on Facebook. I'm not a person that can handle it, and I don't believe in funding that guy's unrighteousness. All right, if we continue in this state, it will eventually push out everything else. And so in order to keep that from happening, we are to put our irritation aside to not dwell on it. All right, that's the best thing you can do. If you're listening to talk radio in the afternoon and you enjoy it, you don't get angry and lose your uh, testimony over it, great. If you do, then you, you need to stop listening to talk radio. You've got to have in your life the effective controls so that you don't become unproductive in your Christianity or even in your normal walk of life. I mean, you go to your job, you might not be talking about Christ while you're at your job, but you might be arguing politics with somebody and getting yourself fired. If you have to do that, then get away from the things that are causing you to do it. This is 
all just responsible thinking as a person, and especially when it comes to being a Christian. Be angry when it's right to be angry. Don't let it consume you. Paul knows, Paul uses a known custom of the times <clears throat> to demonstrate how we are to do this. The Pythagoreans bound themselves to find reconciliation to their differences before the sun set. They would shake hands or find some other token which would bring about peace. I've said this, I think it was in this class. It may not have been. It may have been on a Sunday morning, so I'll tell you. Uh, I've got some friends that uh, uh, have come to this church. They're the most wonderful people. They really are wonderful people. They came to this church a couple years ago, and they had been married, and then they got divorced. And they realized that they wanted to be married, and so they got remarried. And they have what is called the hug mat. Okay, the hug mat is inviolable. If you somebody walks to the hug mat during a, an argument or during a time when they're upset at each other, the other one must, must come to the hug mat until they resolve that difference. And that is their policy in their house. And this is what the Pythagoreans did. You, they would shake before sunset to resolve any differences so that they wouldn't have it eating them up. And that's the example Paul is using. Well, uh, the hug mat can be... Uh, I'm going to come to it, and I'm going to stand on it, but I'm not going to hug you. And they're going to stay there until they hug. Or it may be, as one of them said, and I'm going to have to get out of the chair to do this, it may be that they're so upset that one of them will come and stand this far away with one toe on the mat, and, and they'll stand and argue with each other. But once that toe is on the mat, it doesn't leave until another part of the foot moves, and then another, and eventually they get the whole body on it, and they work through their difference, and then they finally hug. And once the hug is received, they can leave the mat. But that is their policy. And I tell you, it works for them. It's kept their marriage together, their second marriage to each other together. And thank God for that, because they are a wonderful group of people, or a couple of people, I guess. They're just wonderful people. But, you know, we have problems in life, and sometimes we just don't know how to handle them, and we do the wrong thing and get a divorce or whatever. And uh, so they have found that as their resolution. And it's a biblical resolution, because like I say, Paul says, don't let the sun go down. Where did he get that from? He got it from the custom of the Pythagoreans. Okay, they would shake hands or find some other token which would bring about peace. Thus, the bitterness that could well up in the night would be quieted before it could get out of control. This is a sentiment not unlike the second half of Psalm 4, verse 4. So I'll take you there and we'll see what that says. Oh, let's see here. Psalm 4, verse 4. There's 3. 4. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. In meditating on what is good, pleasing, holy, and pure, the things which caused us to get riled up will fade away. It may take a little bit of effort, but it will fade away. And this is the kind of thing we have to do. We have to constantly check ourselves. We have to find the spot where we will be the least likely to blow up. And if we do, we need to find out how to control that anger, etc. This is what Paul says. This is what we ought to be doing in every aspect of our life, not just our Christian life or not just towards our wife, but towards the people we work with, towards the things we listen to on TV or on the radio. We need to have this. Um, I wasn't upset today, but I'll tell you a story of how the Lord works things together because I could have been upset. You know, Hedico knows I, I don't have a very high stress tolerance, okay? I, I get very stressed, and then I blow up. And today, I um, left the house, and I asked Hedico, do you want me to bring home dinner tonight? 
And she said, yes, because it's Thai and she wants Thai food. So, okay, I'll bring home Thai food. And uh, so what I do is I go on the way here. Sometimes I eat at 7-Eleven, good healthy food there. And, you know, it, it just, but once in a while on Thursday afternoon, I'll go to the Thai restaurant and I will um, uh, have lunch. And then I'll tell BJ, I want you to get this for dinner, this for dinner, and this for Hitako's lunch for tomorrow. So we have everything. We don't have to cook tonight. And then she doesn't have to make a lunch for herself tomorrow. So she has papaya salad coming for lunch tomorrow. Okay. so. I'm over there, and um, uh, of course, my son, who's not here, but my son, if I don't tell him I'm going to the Thai restaurant, I'm in trouble. So I have to call him. Would you like dinner tonight? Yes. Uh, uh, every time. There's never a no with him. And so he and his wife get dinner. I, I pay for it, and then they'll come and pick it up after they leave the hospital. But um, uh, so that's my Thursday when we go to the Thai restaurant. And today I went there. And I realized that I had forgotten my iPad. And I have to have the iPad for church here because Sergio is the one that makes sure everything is working. And the only way I can tell if we're live is to hear from Sergio. So I thought, I don't want to drive back home. So I, I borrowed BJ's phone. I called Hidiko. She said she'll bring the iPad. And then I thought, well, wait, I'll just bring the food home. Okay. And that'll give me a reason to get rid of the food now and pick up the iPad instead of picking up the food after class. And so that's what I did. I drove home and I gave her the, uh, what's, is something ringing? Oh, it says, okay. Um, uh, I gave her the food and then I realized as I was driving home, the microwave stopped working yesterday. And so she can't heat up the food unless she's gonna spend extra time heating it up in the stove. So now I'm thinking, now I gotta go to Walmart. I, I'm going to be late. I've got all this work to do to get ready to leave on Monday to go to Colorado. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to go to Walmart. I'm going to buy a microwave and then I'll get home after class and I'll plug it in and then she can heat. And so I'm going through all this in my mind. And when I'm in there dropping off the food, she's already got the microwave on the floor because she's cleaning the counter. And so I grabbed the microwave and I took it outside and I put it in the scrap metal pile and I walked to the car, threw in the iPad, and then I realized we had electricians at the house a couple days ago. They had to wire something. I walked back in and I said, did it stop while you were working it or did it just not work? And she said it wasn't working. And I said, well, let's plug it in. I took it into the garage and I plugged it into a unit there and it works. So I think I'm wasting all this time. I've got all this, you know. And then so I, I'm, I'm kind of upset about this, but I went out there. I looked at the panel and they didn't turn on one of the breakers. And I thought, okay, well, I'll turn on the breaker. Well, no, this, this all sounds bad and I'm really stressed over it. I'm almost upset about it. I turn on the breaker and I hear her deep freeze come on. And I thought, I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, because she's got 550 mangoes in there that she's peeled for, to last her the whole year. It's, that's all she uses this deep freeze for is for mangoes. And I thought, Oh no. Well, I opened it up and it was still frozen in there. Nothing was bad. And I thought if, if I didn't come home with the food and go through all of that trouble, we wouldn't have known for another week and everything in that deep freeze would have been bad. And so you see, you don't get angry. You have to just think, why is the Lord allowing this into my life? I know that was a long story to get you to the point, but think about it. All of that worked out just to save Hidako's mangoes. 
Yes, all and that's exactly the verse that went through my head when I got in the car. Romans eight twenty eight went through, or is it thirty eight? Whatever, twenty eight. Uh, it went right through my head, and I said, "Thank Jesus, you know, thank the Lord for that," because all of that could have been bad. And she stands there literally for hours and hours and hours cutting those mangoes. I hours. I mean, when they start coming out, she starts collecting them, and of course, we're giving them away and bringing them to church and throwing them at people on the road because we got so many mangoes and. And, uh, but I, I have to tell you, I'm so thankful that things happened the way they did. But the whole time I'm upset because I'm losing time and I'm, I've got to get the work done before I leave on Monday. And I don't, you know, I've got a long, busy three days ahead of me before I leave. And then I've got when I, like I say, when I come back, it's going to be a real stressful couple days catching up. So, uh, you don't know what I'm talking about. Mom doesn't know what I'm talking about. She's like, I got to go to Boulder. Pam died. Pam. And so I'm going to do their funeral on Tuesday. So I, 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 sorry, I didn't tell you, but I've been too busy to even think about it. So, okay, we'll go on now. But that's the point that I wanted to make. You what? Yeah, my nose is growing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, well, you never know. Um, so uh, in meditating on what is good, pleasing, holy, and pure, the things which caused us to get riled up will fade away. And so that's what I was doing after I got done. I was still excited about the, the afternoon's waste of time, and I, but I started just thanking the Lord, thanking on the Word. It was very nice to have that happen, actually. But when you don't see what's happening and why bad things are happening, you're just confused. But the Lord was merciful on Hedico's mangoes. Okay, life application. Carrying around bitterness for an extended period of time, will inevitably cause harm to the one carrying it. No doubt about it. It's, it's going to cause you harm in one way or another. It may also result in physical acts, which will later be regretted. The more we carry such anger, the more rash and impulsive we are likely to become. And that was written about Charlie Garrett to Charlie Garrett, and you just happen to get to hear it. I have to really calm myself down. I'm an A-type personality. I don't handle stress well. I don't handle pain well. And so I can uh, go off on a handle very quickly. All right, 427. We got, uh, let's see here, 427. Nor let, nor give place to the devil. Well, that's a long one. Nor give place to the devil. The word diabolos or devil means slanderer. In this case, it is used with an article to indicate the slanderer or the devil. Okay, I'm going to tell you, now this is the New Testament. It's a little bit different, but if you go to the Old Testament, you will see different Bibles translate uh, Satan, the word Satan, differently. Okay, sometimes it'll say Satan in one translation, and another it will not. It'll say accuser, okay? And how do you know if it's speaking of actually the devil or just somebody that's accusing? The way you can tell in the Hebrew is if it is prefixed by the word the, then it is speaking of Satan, the accuser, okay? Anytime the word Satan is used in the Hebrew without the article, then it should not be translated as Satan. And I'm going to give you an example of this because people get excited about this particular uh, verse. It says in um, 2 Samuel, that the Lord incited David to take a census, right? And then in two chronicles, maybe one chronicles, anyway, one of them, one or two chronicles, it says that Satan incited David to uh, perform a census, okay? It does not say Satan incited David to perform a census. It says 
the accuser, without the article, accuser, Satan incited David. And that is speaking of the Lord. How do we know that? Because in the account of Balaam, Balaam, with his donkey, the Lord stood in the, the path of the donkey with Balaam on it as an accuser. And the word is Satan. The first time the word is used in the Bible is without the article, and it's speaking of the Lord. Okay? So, when it says in Chronicles that Satan, it, it's a mistranslation. It is incorrect. Because one says the Lord, one says Satan, and they are not the same entity. Okay? There's no article before Satan, and so it should say the accuser, or accuser, without the article. Okay? In the Greek, it's a little bit different. Sometimes articles get thrown around at different times that uh, don't necessarily need to be put in. At times, they definitely need to be put in. But uh, I'll read that again. Uh, it is used with an article to indicate the slanderer or the devil when Paul writes this. He is recognized as the same as Satan, a name which Paul uses throughout his writings. The name Satan, or Satan in Hebrew, describes one of his methods of working evil. He is the accuser, ha-Satan, the accuser, or it would be uh, whatever uh, with the article before Diabolos, okay? But once again, be careful when you read the Bible, when you read something, check other versions, ask why things are. If you don't know and you got a question, go to the original Greek. If you don't know how to do that, email me and I can show you how to go to the original Greek. And then that way you don't need to email me again. You just go to the site I show you and you type in the verse and you can go look. It, it doesn't take a lot of effort, but once you know how to do these things, you will be able to find out where there are mistranslations. And that is a mistranslation. It's a sad one because we do not want to ascribe Satan as being the Lord. Okay, we don't want to do that. Okay, so um, uh, he's the accuser, Satan. Thus he stands accusing man before God. Where is that uh, Job? He said it before I even had a chance to ask it. Especially in the book of Job, Satan stands before the Lord and accuses the Lord of Job. He's saying to the Lord, this guy is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And if you do this, then he'll turn and uh, reject you. Or he'll what? Curse. curse you. Thank you. And then he says, it doesn't work. And so he says, well, if you do this, then he'll turn and curse you. And it doesn't work. And he says, well, if you do this, then he'll curse you. And the Lord says, then go ahead and try. And he says, but you cannot take his life. Satan does not have the authority to take life without the Lord's approval. Okay, we can get that right from that particular passage in the Bible. Okay, so this Satan is there trying to destroy Job's life. He destroyed a lot of life in the process, his own children, his servants, and everything else. But um, there you go with that, is that um, uh, he is the accuser. The title, The Devil, describes the one who introduces enmity into man through slander. So you've got a little difference there. You've got the accuser and you've got the slanderer. You've got Satan and you've got the devil. To give place to the devil, false words, is to allow him to work his wickedness in one's life. It is allowing the heart to be influenced by his evil intent. Okay, so Paul says that, how did he word that? He said in 427, nor give place to the devil. Read that again now. To give place to the devil is to allow him to work his wickedness in one's life. It is allowing the heart to be influenced by his evil intent. So Paul says, don't allow that. Now, there's a difference because in 1 Corinthians 5, and then again in Timothy 1 or 2 Timothy, 
Paul hands somebody over to Satan, right, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And the same thing with um, uh, Hymenus and what is his name? Um, uh, the two bad guys. Um, I'm not thinking of the other guy's name. Anyway, it's in Timothy, and he says, whom I've handed over to Satan. What he's doing there is he is not giving Satan authority over the person forever. Like, um, like in other words, the person is lost to salvation. That is not what is happening in those verses. He is handing them over to Satan so that they can be abused by Satan to stop bringing disgrace upon the Lord. Okay, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, to destroy his flesh, but his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, this guy is doing something that's inappropriate. He's in the church. Hand him over to Satan. Let Satan have him, but get him out of the church is basically what he's trying to tell these people. That's what you want to do. Uh, Hymenius and Alexander, that's who it was. The two two guys that were uh, uh, giving Paul a bunch of grief, and he told Timothy, I'm handing him over to Satan, basically. So there's a difference between giving the devil a place, a foot place, okay? And there's another thing of handing somebody over to Satan. Totally different context, and no you cannot lose your salvation. If you read those verses and you find that, you're looking at them wrong because he specifically says that their spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus, meaning that they're not going to lose their salvation, but they sure will lose their joy on the way there. Okay, that's the point he's making. Um, so, um, yes, it is allowing the heart, giving place to the devil, is allowing the heart to be influenced by his evil intent. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is done through a variety of means. Paul has already addressed putting away lying and not allowing the sun to go down on one's wrath. If we fail to do these things, the devil will certainly seize his opportunity to enter the situation and cause trouble to arise. If you think back on your own life and times when you failed at one of those two things, you probably said, yep, yeah, he got in there and he did his work. You know, he ruined my joy. He ruined my relationship. He, you know, whatever. He got in there because you allowed yourself to just let the devil Take hold of you. Okay, uh, having said that, people will often talk about demons and the devil. Um, this is for you to understand. A person can be possessed by demons. I do not deny that, okay? A Christian cannot be possessed by a demon, all right? People in general can because the world belongs to the devil, and if a demon is inside of somebody, hey, I have no problem accepting that at all. But a believer, a person that is called on Jesus Christ and is saved, cannot be possessed by a demon. He can be afflicted by a demon. Demons can come and give us all kinds of heck all day long. And some of us know that intimately when we go out and something happens and you just know that something, some force is trying to ruin your testimony. That may be demonic affliction, but he cannot possess you. You belong to the Lord and greater is he who is in you than is in the world. Okay, so that, that answers your question in advance. You cannot, as a Christian, be possessed by a demon, okay? But you can be afflicted by a demon all day long. Okay, um, he will continue, Paul will continue with a list of things which could allow the devil to find a place in our heart. In the end, if we do something which is opposed to God and his word, we are allowing ourselves to be opened up to the work of the devil. In fixing our eyes on Jesus and in contemplating the Word of God day and night, and I would say not just day and night, but all the time, because you might say, well, I did it today and I did it last night. That doesn't get it. All day, all night, every day, every night, okay? We will have our hearts open to him and shut to the devil. 
It's a battle. We're in it. If you don't believe me, we'll get to Ephesians 6 in a couple minutes, and when we get there, you will see. Well, it might not be a couple minutes, but we'll get there eventually. You will see that we are in a real battle, and that what Paul is warning about here is what he is going to describe in much detail in chapter 6, the spiritual warfare and how to keep it under control, okay? That's what we need to do. So, life application. The Bible acknowledges that the devil and demons are real. As this is so, we need to heed the commands and exhortations of the Bible, lest we get sideswiped by, this, by these miscreants. And the only way to do this is to know what these commands and exhortations state. Lesson, read, and know your Bible. Not going to happen. If you don't do that, if you're not prepared uh, to, uh, somebody comes at you with something in Scripture and you're not versed in the Word, then you have no idea if he's telling the truth or not. And the same thing is true with your responsibility before the Lord. If you don't know what to do, because it's right there in Ephesians 4 and it's explained in detail in Ephesians 6, how can you do it? And so you're opening yourself up for all kinds of trouble in your life because you haven't taken the time to do the one thing that is necessary for your relationship with the Lord, which is to know the Word. Okay, that's the main thing that you can do after being saved is to get into the Word and read it and study it and follow sermons that are based on the Word of God, follow teachings that are based on the Word of God because they have, um, you know, I typed something today and uh, uh, for somebody, he asked me to give an evaluation of something and I told him that, you know, I read the Word many times, but I didn't have any doctrine because doctrine is completely different than knowledge. Doctrine is taking your knowledge and it's being able to rightly apply it. And so what you want to do is know the word, but at the same time, once you know the word, once you have that down, then you want to learn the doctrines. How are you going to learn the doctrines? You're going to have to read about them. You're going to have to go online or maybe take a uh, Bible course. And when you do, if you don't know the word first, then the doctrine that you're being taught may be wrong. And that is what you are going to believe for the rest of your life. Whatever you're taught in college, on in your uh, seminary, or wherever you're doing, if you don't know that it's wrong and you get it in your head, you're just going to believe it. So you need to know the word first, then get the doctrine, get your systematic theology down, and you will be in the sweet spot. But if you don't do it in that order, you are bound to get misdirected. Okay? So, um, oh, and you know, there's one thing. People email me a lot. Like, I want to learn Hebrew. How, how do I do that? And I tell them how, you know, I've studied Hebrew over the years, and I tell them exactly what I did and the courses I took and that kind of stuff, okay? And one of the things I say is if you want to know Hebrew, if you really want to know it, you need to take a Hebrew course from a college. I don't know Hebrew. I have to learn everything I do every single week. It's a struggle. I have to, uh, it, it's just difficult because I don't know the mechanics of the language. If you know the mechanics, then everything comes easily because you already know how the language is structured. I have to learn that. And every time something new comes up, I have to learn how does that work mechanically. If you want to learn Hebrew and you have the time, or Greek, either one, you can go to a good Bible college or seminary that has responsible teaching in it, like Dallas Theological Seminary, where Will Groban went, okay? And you can audit their courses. Does anybody here know what auditing a course is? I got some yeses and I got a couple, I got several yeses. Okay. Auditing a course means that you can take that course. They will let you take the course for free. 
Just email them and say, I want to learn Hebrew. I've got a passion to learn Hebrew. And they will let you join the classes. You can do them right online. You can learn the language or whatever discipline they have in that college. You can do any college course normally. Most colleges will allow you to do this. The only thing is you do not get credit for it. Who cares? Who cares if you got a piece of paper? That's irrelevant. What matters is you've got the knowledge that you wanted. So if you want to learn something, if you have a real desire to learn the Greek and understand what is being written here in the New Testament, then I would suggest that you call or write or email Dallas Theological Seminary and say, I'd like to audit your Greek courses. Can I do that? And they'll say, sure you can. And they'll tell you how to do it and what's expected of you. It's not a lot, and you can kind of set your own pace. So I recommend anybody that wants to gain knowledge. If you want to learn systematic theology, go to Dallas. It's a good school. It used to be. I'm sure it still is, but I, I, you know, I, I qualify that because things go downhill very quickly in this world today. But that when Will Groban went there several 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was a good school, and he recommended it. Okay, But... I recommend that people do these things because that is how you can develop yourself as a Christian and as a responsible person that is using the word rightly. But don't just go to like, um, you know, Arizona University where they have a, a course in theology and take it from them because all you're going to get is that Buddha is the same as Jesus is the same as Muhammad and you're wasting your time. Okay, go to a good, sound theological seminary and they will be able to set you up with what you want to learn. Okay, so... Um, he's going to continue this list. I said that. Okay, yeah, the Bible acknowledges that the devil and demons are real. As this is so, we need to heed the commands and exhortations. I know I read this already. Of the Bible, lest we get sideswiped side by these miscreants. And then I said, read your Bible. Okay, so 428 is where we are now. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Okay. Paul is writing to who? The Ephesians. Okay. Remember last week when I said that somebody that gets converted, I tell him about Jesus and he goes back to Japan and he's in Japan and he has no idea what to do. Do you think that what I was saying was incorrect? Because Paul just proved what I said is correct. He doesn't know to not steal. Unless Paul had written that, he would have no idea that I can't continue to steal. He would have no idea about that. I know that's true because Paul had to tell the Ephesians, he's already been with how many times he had to tell them in writing, don't steal. That's how you know that what I said last week was true because, you know, you'll get people that'll give you a little thumbs down on a YouTube video because they don't like what they heard. I don't care if they like it or not. If it is based on the word of God, that is all that matters. That is all that matters. And I'll just you know, accept their list. Have you noticed, though, that I don't care what video you watch, I don't care how well done it is, there's always somebody that within the first 10 minutes of that video being posted, there's a thumbs down. It is unbelievable. People, I think they just have, they, they do searches, you know, because you can tell all the new videos that come out and they just go to them and they give a thumbs down. That's, they're just perverse people. Anyway, um, I thought I'd throw that in because there are people like that are just vile. But um, I don't care if somebody thinks I'm correct on that or not. I said it, and Paul just confirmed it right there. I'll read it again. He said, let him who stole steal no longer. Obviously, there was a need for him to say that, or he wouldn't have bothered. This is God's word. God doesn't waste words. He doesn't waste time. So obviously, that is something that had to be told to the Christians of the world. 
don't do this thing. Okay, that's why we're called sheep. Sheep are not intelligent animals. I had a, a couple people that came to visit. They attend online, and uh, they had a, they still have their farm up in Nebraska, and they said they had some sheep, and they said they are the dumbest animals. I don't remember how they said it or what they said. I think the animals ended up dying because they were so stupid. You, you really have to tend to sheep care, carefully. That's why the Lord uses that metaphor for us. That's how stupid we are, that Paul would have to tell us, let him who stole steal no longer, okay? But rather let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. I can't believe that that would have to be in the Word of God. But 10 years ago or 15 years ago or whenever I started reading the Bible, I'm just not thinking right now, whenever it was, I needed that, obviously, because it's in the Word of God. Okay, so here we go. In the Christian world, we might ask, oh, here it is, exactly what I'm talking about. Might ask, why does Paul even bother with this? Isn't it an obvious thing? The answer is that among Christians, stealing is certainly known as something which is wrong to do, and even among those who are not Christians. But who knows the general precepts of the Bible? It is known that Christians look down on stealing. However, this is not a universally applied precept even in today's world. It is true that pretty much every society has rules against stealing, but the individual is often brought up in a culture where it is normal to take things that don't belong to them. I know somebody sitting in a chair back here that has been in one of those cultures for the past 20 years, okay? I lived over there. I know that when you're over in Asia, it's just normal. You're not supposed to steal, but it's the normal thing you do. You walk down the road and you grab something, you put it in your pocket and you keep on walking, okay? And this is all over the world. America is an exception, but it's very quickly. I don't know if you saw the looters in, uh, uh, where is it, Louisiana? Is that who got hit by Ida? Unbelievable. Just, you know, this is somebody else's property. We're going to break into their house and just start stealing stuff. And they got videos of them out there doing that. But uh, it's uh, true that pretty much every society has rules against stealing, but the individual is often brought up in a culture, as I said, where it's normal to take things that don't belong to them even without a second thought. They just do it. It's just, it's okay, right? If they don't get caught, their conscience simply ignores what they have done. Yes, there's a law that says don't do it. It's so common that everybody does it, okay? They have been seared to the concept of considering this as moral wrongdoing. This is what happens to us. We just, we do something and we just don't think it's wrong. So Paul had to write these words. In the case of those in Ephesus, this was certainly the case. Paul saw this common trait of the people, and he knew that they lacked the proper moral guidelines to govern their conduct. It may have been a law in the Roman Empire to not steal, but in the lesser cultures, they lived by those norms which they had always lived. And so, Paul needed to include this thought to show them that the moral expectation of Christian living was to not steal. And further, he goes beyond the thought of prohibiting it by giving them a positive precept to replace their prior conduct. Instead of stealing, they should instead labor. That's right, work. And what does it say in uh, Thessalonians? If you don't work, you don't eat. That's right. I mean, he had to actually tell them that. Such a person should find a way of working with his hands what is good. This sets stealing off as the opposite of good. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that. This is good. This is not good. Okay? And 
when you teach people in some of these foreign countries, I, it would never be considered okay in Japan. I can tell you that right now. I was in Japan for six years, almost to the day. That is the most honest culture I've ever been in. They're unbelievably honest people, okay? They, little children, little children can get on a train and go all the way to grandma's house 300 miles away and nobody would do anything. It just, it's fine. It is such an honest culture. And I, maybe I've said this here, maybe I said it to somebody. If you go to Japan, at least when I was there in the 1980s, they had vending machines. Did I say this? I didn't. I did during the class? Okay, then I won't bring it up. Okay. I, I hate to repeat myself about things like that, but that shows you how honest they are. Oh, you want to hear it? Okay, she wasn't here for this. They have vending machines for everything in Japan. There's nothing you can't buy in a vending machine. And if you want a bottle of whiskey, you go out on the road and get a bottle of whiskey. And yet, until they are of age, and I mean the day of their birthday, no kid will go and buy that whiskey or beer or whatever. That's how honest they are. That would, you put it out right down the road here, it would be empty in five minutes. You'd have kids all over the place lying drunk. So that's money on the road, money on the road that they turn it into the police. Yeah, they, they would never think of keeping money. And of course, you're never going to know whose money that was. So you might as well keep it in that instance. They won't do it. They'll just take it and they'll take it down the little police station. They'll walk an extra two miles to take it. I found 45 cents here. This is, you know, they're very, very honest people. It's amazing. Okay, so that wouldn't be a problem teaching that in Japan. Okay, but. They have other problems in Japan that really need to be addressed if they are Christian. So the Lord certainly has covered all of them. This sets stealing off as the opposite of good. It is contrary to what is morally sound. And then, to further strengthen his words, he goes beyond simply doing what is good for self-supplementing uh, for self by supplementing the good of which work provides, even to showing that not only should it take care of one's personal needs, but it is proper in order, here's Paul's words, that he may have something to give him who is in need. Not only not stealing, but not only going out and getting a job and being productive, but actually saving money so that you can help somebody that has less than you do. Paul goes beyond the principle and he goes to the finer points of Christianity all in one verse. It's amazing. He had, oh yeah, he has in just one thought gone from harming others in order to promote the welfare of self to helping self and to the additional plus of being able to help others. Unbelievable. It's how, how he weaves his words together so that we can have just exactly what we need to guide our lives. In stealing, there is actually only harm to all concerned. Nobody comes out unscathed. In working for what is good, there is the possibility of a double blessing. One can enrich himself, and he can also take care of others who are in need. Another positive benefit of adhering to these words now, there is surely a heavenly reward awaiting those who adhere to God's word, who are diligent in laboring honestly with their hands, and also who are willing to help those who are in need. So everything is benefited by doing what Paul says, even until the day you stand before the Lord Jesus and receive your rewards. If you are doing it in faith, I will qualify that. If you're just doing it to, you know, impress your boss, oh, see, I helped this guy out today. I'm sorry, you get no reward for that. If it's not done in faith for the Lord Jesus, then there are no rewards. What you do must be done in faith. And as long as you're doing it in faith, it doesn't have to be anything grand. It doesn't have to be anything exciting. You are demonstrating 
faith in the Lord, he will reward you for it. All in all, great things can be expected and are sure to result from applying the precepts found in this verse right here. Life application. A life without productive work is one which will lead to all kinds of troubles. The old saying, idle hands are the devil's playground, is correct. If we don't fill our time with productivity, we will fill it with that which is detrimental to ourselves and others. No way around it. That is how it is. I try to be productive from the moment I wake up in the morning. Usually, it, I, I, the clock will go off sometimes, but usually my eyes will pop open one minute before the clock is set for. And it changes because, you know, when you change the, the time or when you have the battery go dead, so it'll be off by a few minutes. But once my, my cycle is set, I usually wake up one minute before the clock goes off. And that's usually about 3.30 or 3.35. And then from there, I try to keep my hands going until I go to bed because I don't want anything interfering with my relationship with the Lord. I want to keep busy, and I don't want any idle time. So it is full. But at the same time, uh, I do take the time off to sit with Hedico over there, and we have a nice dinner every day. And we, You know what we've been watching during dinner lately? She really loves this, too. I, I'm digging it. I saw it when I was young. I, we grew up watching it, but I got to tell you, Perry Mason... Wow, that's really good show. You don't I got a frown from Burke. You don't like that? Oh, was he? I didn't know that. Well, now you've blown it for me. I had no idea. I had but still I'm gonna watch it because they are very good shows. But now you've tainted it for me. I'm feeling unclean. Oh. Hedico's really I said, you know, do you want to watch something else tonight? Oh no, I'd like to watch Perry Mason. So it's just long enough for what you know, I mean it's 38 minutes long or something, just long enough to watch through dinner. And there's nothing pervert in there. Well, <laughs> thanks, Bert. You just ruined my day. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see here. Idle hands are the devil's playground. If we don't fill our time with productivity, we will fill it with that which is detrimental. Therefore, let us remember the words from Moses of Psalm 90, verse 4. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. To not misquote it for you, I will take you there. And it says in verse 90.4. Oh, no, that's not what I want. What I want is verse um, um, 17. I don't know why I put four there. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I don't know why I wrote, oh, I know why I put Psalm 94 there. It's because that's a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, which Peter quotes in 2 Peter 3, 8. And I was probably missing, mixing up my numbers there. So it's 90 verse 17 is what I want. And I apologize about that. And there you go. People are, who have read this commentary probably think, what is he talking about? You know, anyway. Okay. So yes, let us remember the words of Psalm 90 verse 17. Establish the work of our hands. Thank you, Lord. Verse 429. Let's see here. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good, what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. What a difficult verse to properly and continuously apply to our lives. I'll read it again. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. I, 
mumble under my breath a lot when I'm reading articles in the morning and in the evening. I can tell you that. It's a very difficult verse to live out. One cannot turn on the TV, sit in a restaurant, or do almost any other thing without being surrounded by corrupt words. And yet we are asked to let no corrupt word proceed out of our mouths. The word for corrupt in the Greek is one which indicates that which is rotten, useless, or depraved. It is used in Matthew 7:17 7, to describe rotten fruit. Our words are not to bear such corruption. Rather, they are to be that which is good for necessary edification, Paul's words. This is set in complete contrast to that which is corrupt. Things that are corrupt sink into themselves. They stink, and they become weak and unable to be held together any longer. However, that which edifies is that which builds up. When you think of edification, you think of like building a house, something with a strong foundation. It provides strength, and it causes things to bind together in a stronger way. This is what we are admonished to do towards those around us. What the focus is on, what the focus is on is not our vertical relationship with God so much as our horizontal relationship with our fellow believers and even with those who are not believers. In our speech, we are to form our words so that it may impart, as Paul says, grace to the hearers. For believers, we will keep from bringing them down or from causing them to stumble in their walk with the Lord. For non-believers, we are to be an example of that which is right, which is honorable, and that which points to Jesus Christ. If our speech is foul and corrupt, we will only cause them to see such loathsome conversation as the norm among Christians. And then there's no difference between you and the world, and they're like, why would I want to be a Christian? Thus, there will be no truly visible distinction between us and the world. To impart grace to the hearers is to lead them to that doctrine which saves, meaning Jesus Christ. If our words are not in accord with the righteousness of God, which is found in Christ, then our hearers will not understand how they are to also properly conduct themselves in a holy and righteous manner. Life application. Wholesome speech is a hard thing to find in the world today. And it's getting worse by the day. I mean, you listen to what they're saying, even in Congress. Some of the things that some of the people on the left openly say would never have been even allowed. They wouldn't have even allowed. They would have said, you're out of Congress for the next two days to think about it or something. No, they just say it right out in the open. Okay? Wholesome speech is a hard, find, hard thing to find in the world today. You hear things on TV today that you wouldn't have heard a year ago, and you hear things a year ago that you wouldn't have heard a year before. I mean, every single year, it gets a little worse, and it gets a little worse, and it gets a little worse. Because of this, and because we are susceptible to assimilating that which we are constantly immersed in, how easy it is for our own speech to become corrupted, and just like the rest of the world. It takes real effort to not allow this to happen, but it is what we are admonished to pursue. 4.30. Wow, we've done a lot of verses today. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There you go. Once again, eternal salvation, folks. He said it in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He says it again right here. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. First, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And Paul doesn't say you're going to lose your salvation. Secondly, he says that we are sealed for the day of redemption. If we're sealed, we're sealed. It's done. 
It can't be taken away. You cannot lose your salvation. If you believe you can, you have been told a, a ponytail or something. I don't know. Ponytail. What's a fairy tale? Thank you. Forget. Oh, you know what? Forget that. Okay, 430. A list of negative things which we are exhorted to avoid has been given since verse 25. Ponytail. Uh, yeah, I was missed by that much. A lot. Along with them have been given contrasts, which we should engage in. We've been given the wrong things and the right things. This verse is now introduced to show the effect of participating in such negative actions. And further, the negatives will continue for the next few verses. They will likewise contain positives to contrast them. In avoiding the negatives and in acting out the positives, we will not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's Paul's words. In these words, a much fuller description of the Holy Spirit is given than is normally introduced. It more literally reads, the Spirit, of, the Spirit, the Holy of the God. Okay, you don't need to translate all the these in the Greek to the English, but that is the way it's written. The Spirit, the Holy of the God. And of is inserted. It's, okay, that's implied. It is an expression of the personhood of the Spirit within the Godhead. This expression is further bolstered by the term grieve. It is a clear indication that the Spirit is not an active force as claimed by the heretical Jehovah's Witnesses. They say the Holy Spirit is God's active force. It's not a being in any sense at all. You can't grieve an active force. Stick your finger in the uh, socket over there, and the only one who's going to be grieved is you. Okay? You can't do anything to electricity. And that's all an active force is. It's just so the Jehovah's Witnesses are heretics. If they come to your door, tell them to beat it, unless they'll allow you to preach to them. Otherwise, just tell them to leave. Rather, it indicates a personhood. An active force cannot be grieved. Understanding this, it is still to be noted that the Spirit of God cannot actually be grieved by our actions. It's not possible. Instead, the words are used to show the type of grieving that a friend would endure if they were negatively violated by our actions. The kind of behavior that would cause such grief. Paul is saying that we are not to act in a manner which would cause a close friend or a beloved friend to be grieved by what we do. Once again, the Holy Spirit is spirit. There's no change in a spirit. Spirits don't get happy. They don't get sad. There's no time associated with being a spirit. Okay, God is outside of time. He created time this bubble of time for us to exist in. But he doesn't change. He doesn't get angry in the sense that something is happening. Why? Because if any of those things happened, then we're not speaking about God, okay? Because God does not have time associated with him. God the Father, God the Son, the deity of God the Son, and the Holy Spirit have no time associated with them. If God gets happy, then something is happening when he's getting happy. What? Time is going by. Okay, you see that? God doesn't change in that way. That's why we have Jesus, is to reveal to us the unseen God that is unchanging in his very being. Okay, so immediately following up by these, following up these words, Paul says of the spirit of the spirit, the of the God, that it is he by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The spirit is the seal of our guarantee of redemption. 
This is more fully explained. I already said it, but I'll read it to you now in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Here's what it says. If you believe you can lose your salvation, you're wrong. In him, you also trusted. After Speaking of Jesus, in him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you heard the word and you trusted. The word trusted is being used here synonymously with the word belief, which you'll use in a second. Here we go. In him you also trusted, and trusted is inserted there, by the way. It's, I'll read it without it, and you'll, you'll see. In him you also, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed. So the believed goes back to the word trusted. Okay, they inserted it for your clarity, but that's what it's referring to. So we'll start again. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, someone spoke to you of it, you heard the word, the gospel of your salvation, in whom Christ also, having believed, you just believed in Christ. This is what Paul says. You heard the word, you trusted, you believed. You were sealed. He says right there, the way he writes it, there is no time between the two. It happens, okay? He doesn't say that, but you can tell. He's inferring, or you can infer this from what he says. That when you believe this, the moment you believe, you are a sealed believer of God in Christ. So here it goes again. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee? God's guarantee is not like our guarantee. If you buy something from an auto parts store and it breaks, they may or may not warranty it based on some little thing, some technicality. If God guarantees something, it is as sure as his name, and his name is unyielding. He is the guarantee, this sealing of the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It's not for our glory. If it was for our glory, then it wouldn't matter if we lost our salvation. There would be no difference to God. But his name is on the fact that he has sealed you. He has given you a promise, and it is guaranteed. It is to the praise of his glory. And so if you believe you can lose your salvation, you are wrong. Okay? We'll go on. It says there, these words of Paul once again show us that salvation is an eternal degree of God, decree of God, not degree, decree of God. As noted in Ephesians 1, if God seals us with his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, and if we can lose that, then, one, it was not a very good guarantee. Two, it is of our effort and not of God that we were saved. And three, God made a mistake in sealing us with his guarantee. It's not the God of the Bible that you are following if you believe that you can lose your salvation. That doesn't mean you're not saved, but you're believing something incorrect about God, and therefore you are not following in that precept the God of the Bible. As none of these are possible, read them again. Guarantee, okay? It is of God and not of our works. And if he gave us a guarantee and he didn't keep it, then he made a mistake. None of these are possible. Then our salvation, at the moment that we believe and are sealed with the Spirit, it is a done deal. Though attacked often as a false doctrine, the terms eternal salvation, or people love to attack this one, once saved, always saved, are biblically supportable and they are correct. The teaching of the possibility that one can lose his salvation is discrediting of the work of Jesus Christ. 
It is exalting of one's own efforts in the place of what God has done, and it calls into question the very integrity of the work of all three members of the Godhead. It is unclear thinking, it is contrary to the words of Scripture, and it is to be ignored and refuted by those that trust that God is fully capable of saving us and keep on saving us despite ourselves. Okay? And let me find something. I've got to do something very quickly here. Um, I've got a wrong word in here, and I'll just make a note here. T-H-E-I-R. There we go. All right. Life application. If you are saved, you are saved. That's correct. Okay. Verse 431. We're just whipping right along. I can't see. Yes, there's a light shining on that part of the clock, and I couldn't see what was going on. 431. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Paul has just stated that we are to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This list certainly is given to include those things which would cause this to occur. He's admonishing us that these things will keep us from being filled with the Spirit. Instead, they're an indication of walking in a carnal way, which is opposed to a spirit-led life. The list will go on into the next chapter as well. He begins with bitterness. The word bitterness is a good translation of the Greek. It indicates having an embittered or resentful spirit. We are to avoid this and to instead let go of things which will well up and poison our inner selves. Let's see here. Wrath is a word which signifies getting heated up or breathing violently. It is a, here's Helps Word Studies definition, passion-driven behavior. For example, actions emerging, emerging out of strong impulses or intense emotion. Anger, that comes from a word indicating to swell. It proceeds from an internal disposition which steadfastly opposes someone or something based on an extended personal exposure. For example, solidifying what the beholder consists, considers is wrong. It would be unjust evil. Once again, that helps word studies there, provided that explanation. And let's see here, clamor. Clamor signifies loud wailing, which is exhibited with great emotion. I'm thinking of, I won't say it. <laughs> Screaming or shrieking. It would even go to wailing in non-human sounds as if possessed by a demon. Just imagine the crazy person at Walmart who yells incoherently at the checkout counter because there aren't three candy bars of the same type on hand. Okay, that's the person that would be making clamor. Charlie, he, yes? In the, in the cultural context, might that be like what they do in the world? Oh, absolutely. But... That, that's an emotional thing, and I don't think that, that this is something that is negative towards other people or negative. Those people are just grieving. And, you know, I've seen some really wild funerals. You know, in America, we're very reserved. We don't, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, they're almost violent. You're right. I mean, they're almost violent. But uh, uh, I, I, I don't know if I would consider that because that's their way of showing grief, you know. Um, that was actually what I almost started to say and then stopped. And so I, I'm not going to get into that, but you did. So that's okay. Uh, evil speaking is the Greek word blasphemia. It indicates abusive language and thus blasphemy. It switches right for wrong or wrong for right. 
For example, it calls what God disapproves right, which exchanges the truth of God for a lie. That's helps word studies again. Okay, that takes you right back to Isaiah, where he says uh, they trade salt for sweet and, you know, whatever, bitter. Uh, you know what I'm saying, light for day and uh, light, whatever. My brain just stopped trying to quote that first, but you know the one I'm thinking of. Burke has probably got it memorized. Have you got it memorized? Okay, anyway, and neither do I, obviously. <laughs> okay, Paul notes that these things are to be put away. We are not to act in such a manner as described by these malignant attitudes. And further, he says that includes all malice. In other words, malice describes the underlying attitude of evil. It is inherent evil which is present even if it is not seen in an outward expression. Those evil things which we harbor even inside need to be quenched as we walk in newness of life in the Spirit. Life application. Imagine that someone is filming you as you have a violent outburst described in the words above. How would you feel if it was presented to the world? The Lord is there seeing all that we do. And therefore, how much more should we want to not act in such inappropriate ways? Okay, I am going to do the last verse of chapter 4, and then we're going to finish, even if we're a couple minutes early, because uh, this is the last verse of chapter 4. Verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So you got just the opposite of what we just heard. A bunch of negatives, now we got some positives. Question. How did Christ forgive you? Freely, okay. Through the cross. Anything else? Go ahead. When she, that's what I'm looking for. When I asked, when I came to Christ, he forgave me. I don't know what I'm going to say here, but I'm going to say this right now. This is one of those verses that is beaten over people's heads. You must forgive everybody. If you believe that, you are incorrect. I've got an entire paper typed up on that subject. They say, you must forgive everybody just as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? You asked. If somebody wants to be forgiven, they need to come to you and ask for forgiveness. Okay, that's how it works. This is the New Testament church age. Right. What the beatitude was, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who confess against right. us. That was under the law. This that's right. Grace. You know, but people, people even say, they, they, oh, they take everything out of context with this. One of them is, um, Father, forgive them for they knew not what they did. Well, when somebody offends you purposefully, you, they knew what they did. That's right. And here's another question. Those that did know what they were doing, were they forgiven? Only if they came to Christ, because as we read in our commentary today, the rest of them were executed or exiled. Over a million Jews died because they rejected Christ. Everything has a context. So here we go. Think about, oh yes, in this verse, Paul contrasts the words of the previous verse. Instead of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, we are to be one kind to one another. The Greek word translated as kind describes what God defines is kind, and therefore also eternally useful. We have no adjective in English that conveys this blend of being kind and good at the same time. That is uh, Vincent's word studies. So we have a very complicated word there, so he does best to tell you about that. Two, tenderhearted. 
The word is used only twice in the New Testament, here and in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. It is a combination of the words good and guts. The visceral organs were considered the seat of emotions, and so the guts are used as our modern term heart is used. We say heart, they said my guts. I have a feeling in my guts, okay? Three, forgiving one another, qualified by even as God in Christ forgave you. We're supposed to forgive everybody even as God in Christ forgave you. To be forgiving is to overlook that which offends, setting it aside and not picking it back up again. When an offense occurs, how we deal with it will define how Christ-like we ourselves are becoming. I'm going to say this now before I forget. If you want that paper that I have on forgiveness, I will send it to you. Do not send it to me, please, uh, in email this week. Send it to me next week. Make a note and send it to me after next Friday, okay? Please, because I'm, I've got a very busy schedule for the next six days. So please, if you want that paper, make a note, send yourself an email, and next Friday you can ask me, okay? The question above now needs to be addressed. Because it is parts of the words which Paul has given, for, given us for the rule and guide of our lives, and so how did Christ forgive you? There are several aspects which scholars focus on. Each of them is correct and should be applied in our forgiveness. Do I have time to finish this? This is kind of long. Let's see here. Wow, I'm going to have to read quick. Um, uh, forgiveness should be unmerited. If someone comes to you and asks pardon, you should be willing to give it without strings attached. God forgave us in Christ without any strings attached, okay? In other words, salvation is eternal because if you can lose your salvation by what you did, then it wasn't up to you. There was nothing attached. He simply canceled our sin debt. Two, forgiveness should be complete. If someone comes to you and asks for pardon, you are to completely forgive them of their offense. In Christ, God has forgiven every sin without exception. Three, forgiveness is to be permanent. When pardon of an offense is requested, it is also to be forgiven and forgotten. It is not to be taken up again at a convenient time in order to require more of the person or to punish the person. It is to be pushed out of the mind and forgotten. Okay? Having said these things, this verse is one of the most abused verses in Scripture by those who want to lord the precept of forgiveness over others. There's a common element to each of the three points mentioned concerning forgiveness and any others that may be considered, which is almost always overlooked. John Gill makes the immense mistake of stating the following in his analysis of this verse. He says, That is fully and freely and from their hearts and so as to forget the offenses and to not upbraid them with them hereafter, yea, they should forgive them before they repent and without asking for it. And that is for Christ's sake. No, that is for your sake if you do so. If you want to forgive somebody because you don't want to carry that burden, that is fine, but that is for your sake. Okay? The question is, how did Christ forgive you? The answer is, I asked him to forgive me and I was forgiven. There is an action following an action, and yet people overlook the obvious and state that we must forgive everyone unconditionally and at all times. And as John Gill said, even before they repent, that is not true. And even before they acknowledge their offense, this is not how God forgave us in Christ. To state that leads to the heresy of what is known as universalism. 
Universalism is that there is no hell. God forgives everybody. You can do whatever you want in this life. That is what that attitude leads to. And that's why the left wants you to be told that you have to forgive everybody all the time. It leads naturally to the doctrine of universalism. Okay, where was I? God forgives all sin, potentially. Every sin of humankind for all of human history is forgiven, potentially, at the cross of Jesus Christ. He does not actually forgive all sin. Only when one comes to him through Christ is that person forgiven. There is not a blanket waiver of all sins which has been unconditionally handed out to humanity. Rather, there is a blanket waiver which must then be received by the offender. Never let anybody tell you that you must forgive everyone without conditions because it is what Christ has done. That is absolute heresy. When someone who offends you comes and asks for pardon, you are to pardon them. But until they come to you for pardon, they cannot actually be forgiven, only potentially. Get your boxes right and don't be a Christian punching bag for the depraved of the world to beat you up at their will. We got to finish right now. Life application. Forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. To understand what that means, reread the comments above. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we do thank you for the forgiveness found in Christ. We thank you that it is open to anybody, even the most vile sinner on this planet, can come to you and his sins will be forgiven because that is what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor, and you have offered it to the people of the world. How sad that we have, as a species, rejected that. But thank you for the fact that we can accept it. And for those who have, we will be praising you for all eternity, for the grace that was poured out upon us because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his beautiful and precious name we pray. Amen. Get close. Can't go over that time frame. Check this down. Back this up.